I believe God's doing something unique this morning. Little confession. So this is a series we've been planning for a while, and I'm supposed to kick off the series. It's called The Cost. If you're like, what in the world does that mean? We're going to talk about it. And uh, last night, I did something I haven't done in years. I totally scrapped everything I was going to teach on, and, and I did a different sermon this morning. And so we'll see how it goes. You guys ready? No, I, I believe that God has kind of wired this moment. You know, I, I, uh, uh, months ago, I got invited to go up to Chicago this last week to meet with uh, pastoral leaders from around the country, about 15 other leaders that are doing things very similar to what we're seeing happen here in Indiana. And I went up there uh, to thinking that we were going to come up with these great strategies of how to you know, expand the, the reach of the gospel all over our, our country and world. And I walked away feeling very differently. And I learned some strategies and that sort of thing, but, but what I really walked away with, if we're going to see the move of God that I think we have begun to see here in the state of Indiana and beyond, things that I've never experienced in my entire life, but if we're going to see it go to the next level, it's not going to be strategy that gets us there. I believe it is going to be a heart, a spiritual heart for what the Lord is already up to. I believe that it's going to come from prayer and fasting and calling on the Holy Spirit that we believe is in this room with us right now to move in a way we have never experienced before. And so that's really what this morning is about. We're going to talk about the cost of following Christ. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12. And let me set the context for you a little bit. When I first became a Christian man, it was a radical life change. I've shared that before. I went from throwing the fraternity parties to leading a Bible study in the fraternity house. But one of the things I don't often share about that was new to me, an experience that kind of changed me, was I was so excited to know Jesus, to, to go to heaven when I die and repent of my sin and like actually know that the Spirit of God was in my life. It was awesome. I was so excited. I started telling everybody. I would go to my friends, my fraternity brothers. Everybody's like, you won't believe it. God is in my life, and he's doing all these amazing things. It's, ama- it's so awesome. You need to experience it too. And most of the time, their reaction was like, that's amazing. Uh, you know, it wasn't, thank you for sharing that with me. I just changed my life. Usually, the reaction was like, oh, what's happened to Josh? <laughs> you know, like, oh, I, I, you, can we still be friends? You know, there was experiences that weren't positive ones for me. And I was like, I don't understand, God. Why is it like this? Nobody ever told me when you begin to follow Jesus, there's a cost that comes with it. And it wasn't the fault of those who hadn't had that experience. It wasn't that they were bad people and I was a good person. It was that I had experienced something that the the God of the universe had done in my life and I wanted them to share it. But what I hadn't acknowledged, when you love God and you love others the way that Jesus taught, there is a cost that comes with that love. And that's what this morning is about. So you ready to study God's word together, church? Come on. It says this in Mark chapter 12, Jesus has been going in his uh, three years of ministry for a while now. He's nearing the time where he's going to be going to the cross, crucified for the sin of all of humanity. He's going to raise from the grave, overcoming death itself, that anybody can live eternally in heaven and be forgiven for your wrongdoing in your life now. But at this point, he's still being challenged by all the religious leaders. And they come to him in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, and say this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. 
Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commands, which is the most important? That's a lot of commands, by the way. We got the Ten Commandments. Then we got all the laws and regulations of how to purify your life throughout the Old Testament. All of these things that the Pharisees in particular, that religious group would have desired for him to respond with. But he asked them, which is the greatest of these? And he said, verse 29, the most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. To acknowledge that there is one God and to love him with all of your heart is the greatest commandment according to Jesus. You're like, I already knew that. I've heard this passage before. I bet you have. What I have been sitting on this week and why I scrapped everything last night is I think we have to get back to the fundamentals of following Christ if we're going to actually understand the cost of following Jesus. Fundamentally, the primary thing, the most significant thing in our life must be to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and being. In the Old Testament, the Hebrews, it comes from Deuteronomy, it was called the Shema. They would wake up in the morning and pray that. They would go to bed at night and read it and pray it. They believed that the Lord was the most important thing of their life. When they were, if you go back and read a lot of the Jewish prayers, it was always the king of the universe. It wasn't usually like friend that I want to go to heaven with. It was the king of the universe, master of my life. This is, please teach me today that I love you first before anything else in my life. I've been convicted of that this week. I'll get to that. It goes on. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. It's interesting. He asked him for one. He gave him two. Jesus, always an overachiever, tells him, can you really love God if you're not loving others, his creation, the, the Imago Dei, his image? He says, there is no commandment greater than these. Verse 32, well said, teacher. The man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, you could attend every worship service for the next 52 weeks. You could stand up and raise your hands at the correct times in the worship song, sing on cue. You could go to every Bible study that you could ever go to. You could give the first 10% of your resources and give above and beyond out of generosity. You could do everything to the T, to worship him in the way that he desires. But if you don't love him first and love others second, you will never really follow him in the way that he desires you to. And if we're ever going to see a move of God again, like we have seen many times throughout human history, the Moravians, the Methodists, the, uh, the, the Jesus movement of the 70s, the Pentecostal movement in the last 100 years, like you, if you ever want to see a move of God again, it's going to require that we love God and we love others. And man, that has hit me, that the greatest revival in our nation and in our towns and cities and in our state will come from loving the Lord our God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Let's pray. God, just pause. And um, I know I am not, I'm not worthy, we are not worthy to even share what we're about to discuss because we fall short of your perfection, God. But we know that you can still use us, Lord, despite our failings and our faults, and that we can become more like you, Jesus, that we could grow closer to you, 
I pray right now, Lord, that anything in the sermon that is, is not of you would fall on deaf ears, and anything in your word that speaks to our soul about how to live differently, that we would be forever changed. We claim what we were singing about earlier, that you have the authority to change things in our life. We acknowledge the presence of your spirit with us in this room right now. God, I pray that this wouldn't just be a, an esoteric high-level message, but would be very practical and life-changing for each of us in our individual minds and contexts and lives. We pray this in your son Jesus' name and all of God's family said, amen. Purdue fans had a pretty good day yesterday. Uh, you know, and I got to ask this. I said that at the last service. That, there was a lot of woos, but not the intensity of the woo at the first service. So, the, I, okay, you're a Purdue fan, but the, the Fullers had Purdue shirts on and began to stand up and cheer. So, you know, your devotion is not quite to that level. Did, did the Michigan fans, you guys also won yesterday, correct? No Michigan fans. Praise Jesus. We finally made it as a church. Just kidding. Where are the Smiths? Uh, they, I know there's some blue fans out there. Uh, you know, for the Notre Dame uh, Fighting Irish uh, Team of the Lord fans out there. We had a pretty good day yesterday, didn't we? You know, I, and I love college football. I love watching it, man. I get so excited. I get so intense. I, in fact, can I confess something? I didn't share this in the last service. I try to record it on YouTube TV and then go back and watch. And I say it's to skip the commercials, but it's actually so I can fast forward the anxiety parts, Right? First Peter 5, 7, cast your anxieties on Jesus, it says. So like, I just do that. I go, Jesus, I give you this moment. I'm not going to watch this. But I, I love college football. I love getting into it. And I, what I love about it, you see things in football stadiums you don't see in any other place. You at least got to admit that. If you're like, I'm a musician, I don't care about the sports ball, Eric Maitland. I, you know, like, I want to tell you, here's what I love. Would you go to work and do the things that you do at a football stadium? Think about this really quickly. Like, it's very clear that we love the game of football because when you go there, people, you will, you will like travel hours, sometimes days, just to show up at the event. You will lose sleep over it. You'll be thinking about it constantly. You will go to the event and do things and scream things and yell things that not only would you not want your children to hear, you would never do in the office. In fact, I mean, think about it just for a second. You will go there. Imagine that, like, the football stadium was your workplace. Like, would you go in with your colleagues and you're doing push-ups on top of the other ones in the office space? I love that about uh, all sports that you see this intensity and passion. Nobody has to question your love for the game or for your team, do they? Because when you love something, your actions change. You behave in the way in the cold stadium, Lucas Oil stadium that you would not behave in other places. You know this about sports. You also know it about romantic love, right? Like I shared last week that I met my wife at TJ Maxx in San Dimas, California. What I didn't share with you was the first time that we hung out. I thought it was a date. She didn't, but we hung out. We went to church, went to the coffee house afterwards, and I was, I was in love. And when you're in love, it changes your actions, right? Like the next thing I knew, I'm not making this up, Based off that first date, a semi-date, I actually wrote a song about my wife's eyes. I do not normally behave that way. And what I want to tell you, when you love something, your actions change, don't they? 
See, what Jesus is saying in this passage is that if you love God, if you love other people, you can share it all day long. You can study scriptures on it. But if your actions don't change, do you really love? Because when you love something, it changes the way that you behave and act. I believe Jesus is getting at the most critical component if we want to actually see him change our lives, change our communities, to meet the physical needs of our communities, to change the spiritual attitudes of our communities, to see people who are far from God repent and turn to Jesus fully, to be transformed by the good news of the gospel and go out and change this world for Christ. If we don't have the type of love for him and for others that changes our actions, everything else doesn't matter. And I'm not trying to convict you. I have been convicted this week again. That here I was looking for strategies and what I needed to talk more about was how much do I love God? Because he created the universe in six days. He knitted you together in your mother's womb, it says. He knows every hair on your head. He knows your past, your present, and your future for all time. If there is anyone who is going to see an impact made in this world to change it, to make it look more like heaven is going to be. It is only going to be if we get uncomfortably close enough to Jesus that God actually moves in our lives. So I want to talk about the cost that comes with that type of love because there is a cost. Your actions change because of it. The cost of following Christ, number one, very simple this morning, that you love God first. First. Remind ourselves again, Matthew or Mark 12, 28 to 30. One of the teachers of the law came and heard him debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and uh, with all your mind and with all your strength. The Shema from Deuteronomy, they woke up in the morning, they went to bed at night with that prayer, with that scripture. It was that important. It was of primary importance. Now, if your actions demonstrate where your love is, if we looked at your actions, where you spent your time, your talents, your treasures this last week, what would you say the primary thing that you love in this world is? I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. I'm self-reflecting this morning. If there are things that our actions demonstrate our love more for than for God, what are those things called in Scripture? Idols. Idols. And if I ask you this question, what sin would you say God seems to have the least tolerance for, at least in the Old Testament, of all of the things you could do? And God forgives us all for all sins, but different consequences for different sins. The number one thing he seems to address is idolatry. They, They would make statues or things out of gold, and they would worship that instead of God. Even today, we would worship false gods in other religions rather than following Christ, and that's an offensive thing even to say in our culture. And the number one thing that throughout Scripture God did not tolerate were idols, things that we worship first before God. By the way, it's not just other religious anecdotes. We could look at our own lives and those idols in our lives of where our time, talents, and treasures, where our love resides. I don't know where your idols are, but I know if we're going to see a move of God, it's going to come at a cost. You're going to have to give up some of these things that seem like idols in your life. See, we know this. We know that we should put God first in our life. It should be the primary thing that we live for, yet most of us approach our relationship with God, not with first priority, but as a nice eternal insurance policy. 
I made my peace with God. We're good. That's not really what he tells us to do. He tells us, man, I, he loves us when we didn't deserve his love. He loved you despite your actions. He knows what you did this last month, this last summer. He knows it all. And yet he still loves you and will pursue you and welcome you with open arms like he did the prodigal son. And what he asked for in return is that type of agape, unconditional love. We're to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and being, but we're usually so busy and we have more important things to do like advance our careers so we can purchase more stuff so we can post about it on Instagram. There's gotta be more to life than that. Number one, the cost of following Christ is to love the Lord your God. That type of love, putting God first, is a cost. It's gonna require that you put him first rather than other things. Number two, the cost of following Christ is that you must love others second. Love others second. See, when, when we first begin to follow Jesus, we think that that's going to be easy. <laughs> and it's not. Like, we're not just supposed to love people that we already love. We're supposed to love people that we don't even like. Right? Think about it just for a second. Get real. The person at the office that doesn't always shower correctly and that, you know, there's a little lingling tinge of smell. It just drives you nuts. You can't think about it. God calls you to love even the smelly people in this world. God calls you to love that person at work or at home or in the work or in, out in your social world that just talks all the time, says inappropriate things, that drives you absolutely nuts, that you are called to love that person as well. That even you are called to love people that make really poor decisions with their life. You were called to love people who voted for the wrong candidate. You were called to love people who have a completely different worldview than you do. There is no line in which you are not called to love. In fact, what does Jesus tell us? That we are to love what? Our enemy. Like not just the annoying person, that's bad enough. Like you're supposed to call like the person on this planet that drives you the most insane that you cannot stand. You're supposed to love him, to love God first and that person second. Ooh, man, that is a radically different way of living than most of us live. In fact, 1 John chapter 3, the passage I was literally going to dive more into in verse 16, this is how we know what love is. This is what love looks like. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us because we were deserving and he liked us. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us even though we didn't deserve it, right? We know that in scripture. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. You could attend all the worship services in the world. You could hear sermons on love. You could read all of the, the great books about love, crazy love, all kinds of love. You could do the Bible studies on love. But if you don't actually have the action of love, it doesn't matter commands us that this is the way that we are to live, to put their needs before our own. Do you really, if you love your spouse, like really love your spouse and they are going to get hit by an automobile, what are you going to do? If you really love that person, you are going to do everything you can to prevent that person from being harmed, even if it comes at a risk of yourself. 
That's what love looks like. That's what the action of love is like. Watching college football yesterday, would you be a good teammate? Would you really love your teammates if after the game, you went into the post-game interview and they asked you how you were able to accomplish all of your statistics and you said, because I'm amazing and didn't recognize all of your teammates and all of the great accomplishments of how they helped you achieve those statistics. If you really loved your teammates, you would give them credit. You would invite them in. There is something that means that we have to put God first and others second. Now, I'm not telling you not to love yourself, but I think in a narcissistic society, often when we hear the message, you need to love yourself so that you can love others, we never get to the love others part because we're too busy loving ourselves. The reason that we are to love ourselves is so that we could experience the love of God, that he could go out and make an impact in the other, other people's lives. L- loving God isn't easy, but it is pretty simple. You just choose to do it, or you don't. But there's a cost that comes with that. You have to put him first. There's a cost with loving other people. You have to put them second. Can you really get, love God, by the way, if you don't love people, which bear the image of God? To love God is to love others. That's why when he asks for one, Jesus gives him two. Because the two seem to be connected for Jesus. And some of us claim uh, to love God, but we treat other people in our lives like garbage. Like, Like those two don't go together. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. It's the reality of the sin nature in which we live. I found myself, by the way, coming back from a, a conference with other pastoral leaders, coming back from Chicago, driving down uh, I-65, and there was somebody, a very horrible human being, who kept tailgating me the whole way. And I may have gotten very frustrated, and I may have, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you what I did, but I may have done some things I'm not proud of. It's not easy to love other people that you don't like. But what I should do in that moment is go, oh, why did I do that? I, I, why am I mad at this person? This is just, we're driving down an interstate at fast rates. Why should we care so much about whether we get there three minutes faster or three minutes slower? And I began to go, why did I behave that way? Well, there's something about that the love of God wasn't fully distilled in me where it just poured out that I naturally love this other person. You may not see it that way, but I'm telling you, I have to start acknowledging that, man, the way that I love people better is to get to know God better that I have to get uncomfortably close to him, that I have to get desperate for him. Jesus had this way of always putting people's needs before himself, including his heavenly father. The night he is going to be betrayed and they come to him in the garden of Gethsemane, he's praying. He said, God, I don't want to do this, but let thy will be done. His heavenly father's will was first. And then secondly, he will go to the cross and lose his very life for us and all of the things that we've done over human history. He loved us despite our actions. You see, I think that this this type of love, when people actually experience that love that we read about in Mark 12, it, it will radically change our relationships, our families' lives. It radically changes our communities, our, our outposts and huddles. It radically changes our work environments, our social environments. When we love people at, at, at all stake, that we count the cost that we're going to love them first and foremost. Mark 12 again, verse 31. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these, that these two are combined. In fact, that's why I believe uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said, every genuine expression of love grows out of a consistent and total surrender to God. First John, by the way, says that God is love. So that if we love him first, he, 
his love will naturally begin to pour out of us into the lives of others, that loving others are, is a byproduct of loving God with everything in our life. That's why it was the most important thing for them, the Shema. See, I think that we have to start counting the cost that following Jesus doesn't just mean you go to heaven when you die. It does mean that when you surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. But it also means that now you are called to live on mission in a way to put God first in your life before any of the other idols that we spend our time, talents, and treasures on. And rather than feeling guilty or shameful, thinking I'll never be able to change, why bother? I'm going to hell in a handbasket anyway. Might as well enjoy this life and all of its comforts. That's the, the lie that the enemy, the Hasatan, the adversary, wants to tell us on a daily basis to just throw in the towel. I want to tell you that you can live differently. There is hope, but it will only come with humility. When you have humility to count the cost and say, this is going to cost me something to follow Jesus. What does it cost you to follow Jesus? Most Americans, it doesn't cost us a lot. And so we're surprised in our culture when somebody responds to us and, and treats us differently because we're a Christian. I know we're seeing that growing in our culture, but other people in civilization all over the world have experienced much more persecution. There is a cost to following Jesus. He tells us that in Luke chapter 14. Verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. What in the world? Jesus is telling us to hate our parents. I thought we were supposed to love our parents. One of the Ten Commandments. He's not telling you to not love your parents. He's saying that the first thing in your life has to be to love God. First and foremost. And it's going to come at a cost. What was the cost there? Your life. Did you see the end of that verse? Such a person cannot be my disciple. Yes, even if their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to build the tower? To see if you have enough money to complete it? If you're considering following Jesus, I want to tell you that there is a cost with it. It's going to be your very life. He's going to give you life eternal. He's going to give you all these spiritual benefits. It's the most incredible thing you could ever do with your life. The great journey of following Jesus now and spending eternity in heaven with paradise with him. But I want to tell you that the cost is that you have to love God first and others second. And that sometimes means you have to give up things that you don't want to give up. And that's how you grow spiritually. It comes at that cost to lay down our lives. Verse 29, for if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying the person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. When he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000, you are entering into a spiritual battle and you have to acknowledge the cost is going to be that you have to give up your life in all of humility and now live a life that has God flowing out of it. It's a different type of life. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, everything, your time, your talents, your treasures, you could give up the first 10% of your resources. You could give up an hour to an hour and a half on Sundays. You could give up some time to participate in spiritual things. But if you have not given everything up, to the mission of Jesus. I'm not telling you you don't have salvation. Not. Jesus is telling you that if you do not give everything, you have, cannot be my disciples. Disciple means a learner of the ways of Jesus, that you will not live your life the way that Jesus lived, where he put his heavenly father's will first and he put others second. 
I want to give you a, a couple of examples of this in our engagement pathway of how to grow in your faith here at the church. If your worship service is the first thing that you've come to, we want you to come to a one-hour first step class, begin to get involved, volunteering on the weekends once or twice a month to get to know people, go through our 10-week discipleship experience rooted that's kicking off again in January. You can sign up for it in the lobby. To, to eventually become a spiritual leader, going through a year of discipleship training, uh, we call huddles, and, and to actually see the spiritual growth and the life change that you've dealt with the same sin or same stuff in your whole life, but to actually see the Lord change you to become the person you were created to be. But the long-term spiritual family on mission for us is our outpost. Our outpost network is now 85 and growing uh, micro-communities all over our city and state through the family of churches, and we believe God has immensely more that he's going to be doing through that network. We put God first, others second, and we live on mission in community. I want to give you one example of that, the LOV Outpost, Local Orphan Voice. Today is Orphan Sunday, where churches around the globe are remembering the cause of orphans. And orphans aren't just in other countries, that through the foster care system, there are those today who are orphans. And that this outpost exists to meet the needs of those orphans. On your seats, over the next three weeks, there's a card there that talks about our outpost network. If you do the QR code, you can get more information about our outposts and find one. I encourage you, go to First Step and Rooted first before getting into an outpost. But if you're looking for that long-term spiritual uh, missional community, find that. We have three different variations of that outpost network. But I want to show you a story then in this three-minute video of an outpost that has actually lived this out, the way that we're describing trying to meet the needs of orphans. And there was one woman who got very excited and actually gave away her own car and her own, uh, even a mobile home to this woman that was trying to care for her grandchildren so that they wouldn't have to go into the foster care system. Let's watch this together. I got dating in October of 2020. I lived in a senior community, which meant I couldn't have anyone else live with me, let alone a child. And when they called me, I said, absolutely, I will take him. So they brought him to me. And then May came along and I got my granddaughter. So I was in a situation that I already had to move and now I have two children. I was unable to find a home anywhere in Anders County. Love is, it stands for Local Orphan Voice. God had really broke our heart for um, the kids here locally that are either um, needing to be adopted because uh, they no longer have a family and they're literally waiting, or um, are trying to stay together with their family, but they don't have, the families are vulnerable and they just don't have the supports that they need. The reason I, we call it lo 